Alright, so this being the first uh, video, uh, th this channel will be dedicated to the distribution of ideas. The intent, of course, is to challenge the monopoly held by academic institutions over the production and distribution of ideas as they manifest themselves in the form of philosophy and or theory. Some key theoretical domains that this channel will explore, but that will not be limited to, will include feminism, gender and queer theory, post-structuralism, structuralism, psychoanalysis, Marxism, post-humanism, rhetoric, epistemology, ontology, phenomenology, and others. Because we know that list goes on and on. This podcast, this channel, will be divided into a ser into series that will each take on a specific theoretical domain. In other words, each of those uh, domains just mentioned, each of those fields just mentioned, will be kind of subdivided. Some videos will be conducted through an interview style with other graduate students who are interested in a specific field or thinker. My goal will be to have every video focus on a specific text or idea so as to maintain a set theme over the course of the discussion. Each video will be approximately one hour long to maximize the material covered while maintaining a reasonable runtime. It is important to note that any book or idea presented will be done through a particular lens. It will not always be evident as to what that lens is, however. In many ways, the lenses that we adopt are consequences are a consequence sorry, of years of socialization that make them transparent and ultimately unknown to us. For this reason, I hope that these videos will foster productive conversations and dialogues that do not necessarily regress to basic online arguments, and we all know what those look like. Of course, this may only be a pipe dream. The videos that I will conduct on my own will be primarily focused on the work of Jean Baudrillard. Uh, however, I will not include his interviews or essay collections in this series because that would be uh, that would take way too long, um, and they often vary very distinctly between each essay, between each interview. So this series will be comprised of approximately 30 videos, then each dealing with a specific Baudrillard text of which I've read. Um, every one. There is currently no collection of videos right now that explores each of his texts, and this series will hopefully shed light on some of his more obscure and under-theorized domains or f philosophical uh, approaches. As for myself, I'm a Canadian graduate student, with, and my primary interest, how, uh, interest now is the interrogation of post-humanism through the work of uh, Baudrillard. I contend that post-humanism retroactively constructs the human and its temporal self-identification as coming after the human. Of course, hardcore post-human thinkers would have a problem with that, but it's my idea. With Baudrillard's entire theoretical oeuvre, however, because he's a thinker that uh, must be looked at totally, it's difficult to necessarily just kind of pick out certain texts, I propose that Baudrillard shares some affinities with the broad project of post-humanism, but that he varies on one crucial point. If we consider there to be a post-humanism in Baudrillard's work, which is present with his ideas of simulation and singularity that is emblematic of his later work, um, the post-human figure would not be constituted by a loss of what makes us human, but rather but by the hyper-real and hyperbolic formulation of the human. In other words, the post-human is a figure that would be the human realized, or the human in a hyper-real sense, for Baudrillard. Now, I'll, that was just a sort of introduction as to what is going to be going on. The rest of the videos are just going to deal specifically with a text or idea without any of that preamble or jargon. So right now, I'll move into Baudrillard's first book, uh, The System of Objects. So in 1968, Baudrillard completed his dissertation translated into English as The System of Objects. This thesis of the thesis of this text or his book may seem somewhat out of place for those who have only been indoctrinated to Baudrillard's later work, but in many ways Baudrillard's dissertation explores many of the same phenomena that he has become notorious for in his late work, like the symbolic 
neo-imperialism and his questioning of authenticity. These ideas orbit around his theorization of the system of objects, our orientation towards objects, and the systemic logic of objects, which is to say that a comprehensive study of the objects that we surround ourselves with may give us a peek into our ontological condition as passive consumers. To this point, he writes that the description of the system of objects cannot be divorced from a critique of that system's practical ideology. Not a revolutionary idea, but he builds. This text then begins with a meditation on the structuration of objects and spaces in the, quote, bourgeois home. By the way, it's a side note, I'm not going to mention uh, all of Baudrillard's quotes. I will just speak as though they were my words. What I'll do with that is, or what I'm going to do with this text is I'm, I have a WordPress page that I will upload the document to. So for any of those interested that, that want to read it, so see where, you know, when I'm speaking, is it, are those Baudrillard's words or my words? Um, that'll all be cleared up. However, with long quotes, I'll mention it. Uh, if I'm, any block quotes, I'll uh, make it clear. So I digress, moving back. So the text begins with a meditation on the structuration of objects and spaces in the bourgeois home. The first observation Baudrillard makes is that the interior of the bourgeois home is first and foremost patriarchal. The enforcement of patriarchal authority derives from the unifunctionality, immovability, imposing presence, and hierarchical labeling of each room. The codification of space in the home allows for a single locus of power to maintain a degree of authority that would be impossible, if these, impossible to realize if these spaces were not stagnant. Moreover, each room is expected to perform its function in much the same way that women are expected to exist in the surface of men in the home. It would logically follow then that a change in the cultural logic of the relationship between men and women, of course, we must be weary of this analysis from the beginning because of its heteronormative foundation. In this podcast, I will attempt to be faithful to the idea uh, that the author is attempting to communicate without necessarily challenging them. I want to, whatever neutrality means, I'm going to try and maintain that here. But certainly interesting to think about and important. So we must, uh, he's interested in the logic of the relationship between men and women. And if a change in that setup would be followed necessarily by a change in the style of furniture, for example. This change is not always in the service of a more egalitarian space for all people, however. Take the improvement in domestic technological apparatuses, for example, like the washing machine, an, incredibly, an incredible improvement for having to wash things by hand from having to wash things by hand, or the dishwasher for the same reason, are just two examples of a change in the logic of household objects. Baudrillard states that this does mark progress nevertheless for these objects, which are now more supple in their uses and have ceased to exercise or symbolize moral constraint. This optimism fades, however, when he states that this, in very much the same fashion as Herbert Marcuse, who has come up repeatedly in this text, not directly mentioned by him, but who I will allude to, uh, who only makes a partial limber liberation, or these objects only, their improvement, that is, make a partial liberation, and that this may only be a liberation from the function of the object only, not from the object itself. Liberation from the function of the object only, not from the object itself, sorry. Baudrillard's cynicism pertaining to the ability of objects to emancipate people from their use does not halt the experience of liberation from occurring, but it is in another form. 
The codification and rampant organization of living spaces in the household mark a shift away from what might be considered the symbolic dimensions that may have at one time directed these spaces. Baudrillard writes, symbolic values and along with them use values are being supplanted by organizational values. These spaces are being effectively liberated from the conditions of the symbolic, which is a term that we will explore more when we get to symbolic exchange and death, where rooms now open into one another, everything communicates, and space is broken up into angles, diffuse areas, and mobile sectors. Baudrillard expands on this phenomenon by critically evaluating many intricate components, walls and daylight, lightning, lighting, mirrors and portraits, and clocks and time, to the living space. Each of these details contribute to the growing organizability and codification of living spaces. For instance, of mirrors, Baudrillard writes that the more there are, the more glorious is the intimacy of the room, albeit more turned in upon itself. Baudrillard then extends this point onto the domain of the clock, which is to time as the mirror is to space. Just as the relationship to the reflected image institutes a closure and a kind of introjection of space, so the clock stands paradoxically for the permanence and introjection of time. The patriarchal configuration of these objects and spaces operates to confirm and perpetuate this authoritative, their respective authoritative position. These spaces are designed in such a way so as to keep them at the patriarch's disposal like a kind of distributed system, and which therefore maintains them for his control all over the roles that they are capable of, sum- of assuming. This perpetual affirmation between the patriarch and the spaces he conducts is a notion also taken up by Sarah Ahmed, a much later text, in The Cultural Politics of Emotion, a text that we will eventually get to. In short, Ahmed demonstrates parallel to Baudrillard's text that spaces conform to the dominant bodies that navigate them, or, in this case, control them. With this statement, with this argument, sorry, Ahmed confirms the presence of a system of objects that mirrors the same systems of oppression outside of the realm of objects. So the patriarchy doesn't only affect people, but it affects the spaces that those people inhabit. Baudrillard's move to look at humans through the objects that they surround themselves with is a radical move against anthropocentrism, among other things, and human exceptionalism more broadly. Objects for Baudrillard exist in a somewhat phenomenological position where they are perceived by the humans that order them, and then therefore shape those perceiving humans. Instead of consuming objects, he dominates, controls, and orders them. He discovers himself in the manipulation and tactical equilibration of the system. I like to think of this as an interesting evaluation of the state of power and how it produces, in a sense, its own downfall, another idea that the late Baudrillard uh, takes up more. By commanding the space that surrounds him, the patriarch unknowingly diminishes their own potentiation for fluidity or change, confining themselves to the same determined existence of the objects they believe they are superior to. Perhaps this is too optimistic a reading, as it doesn't account for the perpetual containment of power uh, by those patriarchal figures. Either way, Baudrillard believes that we have inevitably entered a new phase of existence, whereas the earlier civilization, founded on the natural order of substances, may be said to have been undermined by oral structures, the modern order of production, calculation, and functionality must be viewed as a phallic order linked to the enterprise whose goal is the suppression sorry, the supersession and transformation of the given and the opening up of new objective structures. Ultimately, the effect of this shift is the transformation of man into a cybernetician, as someone obsessed with the perfect circulation of messages. At this point in Baudrillard's career, right at the beginning, we can see the foundation of his theories of simulation in the media. As a side note, there's a book by the name of The Uncollected Bo- uh, Baudrillard, edited by Gary uh, Ganosko, 
that is a compilation of some of Baudrillard's work prior to 68, so prior to the release of the System of Objects. In this collection, we can see the very roots of Baudrillard's fascination with the media and film, and especially McLuhan's distinction between hot and cool media. I may do a video on that collection at, at some point. Again, I digress, moving back. With this cybernetician comes a calculated extension of what might be called this post-human body into the living spaces discussed earlier. Baudrillard uses the example of color, where black or gray retains the meaning of distinction of culture as opposed to the whole range of vulgar colors. As for white, it remains largely preeminent in the organic realm, bathrooms, kitchen, sheets, linen, anything that is bound up with the body and its extension ex um, extensions has for generations been the domain of white, a surgical virginal color which distances the body from the dangers of intimacy and tends to neutralize the drives. This point is interesting if we consider a phenomenology phenomenological approach one more time, where the body and its surrounding space inform and negotiate one another. This would at least provide an explanation for the capacity of what may at one time have been called the natural body. It's a very un idea, but it's an interesting one nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, to exist in this artificial space. The function of these colors perform performs a deeper function alongside the eradication of the drives. By eradicating the drives, these colors affirm the existence of those drives in a perpetual play of difference, where the drives come into being through their very negation, in a sense. If this is the case, we must interrogate the supposed naturality or reality of these drives, which Baudrillard does eloquently when he writes that color was immediately taken back in hand by a system in which nature no longer plays any part except as naturalness, as a mere connotation of nature. Nature is codified and distributed in the cybernetic framework, turning nature into a simulacrum of itself. We accentuate this point by looking at Baudrillard's account of functional warmth, which is a warmth that no longer issues forth from a warm substance, but instead arises from the systematic oscillation or extract synchrony of a perpetual warm and cold, which in reality continually defers any real warm feeling, a warmth characterized precisely by the absence of any source. By calling into question the monopoly held by reality or nature to elicit or induce bodily sensations, Baudrillard is, to some extent, calling into question the privileging of so-called real objects. Objectively, substances are simply what they are. There is no such thing as a true or a false, a natural or an artificial substance. Reality drifts back and forth between the natural and artificial sides of the binary, effectively exercising the diametrical split between the two. Naturality and artificiality mend into one another in a constant play of signification. Or to use a characteristically, characteristically Baudrillardian metaphor, they form something of a Mobius strip. We might characterize this relationship now as a mirroring, where each constitute element of the each constitutive element of this binary, when looking back at the other, only sees their own reflection. However, Baudrillard makes clear that glass is one example, and its transparency articulates this logic more effectively than does the mirror. Advertising calls glass the material of the future. A future which we all know we all know will itself be transparent. This statement very much foreshadows much of Baudrillard's later work, i.e., the transparency of evil. Transparency becomes emblematic of the world and the relationship between objects and real subjects in this scheme. In this book, Baudrillard does not demonstrate the importance of this phenomenon as well as he does in his later texts. However, for the sake of this argument, I will suggest that this transparency destroys what he will call later singularity, or the completeness and perfection of any given system, people, or idea at any given time. 
Transparency absorbs singularities and destroys binaries for the benefit of overwhelming homogenization. Again, we may become weary with Baudrillard's theory here, given the stride taken by feminist theorists to, in dispelling boundaries, especially in the one that constitutes the man-woman split. I'll explore this problem more when we get to um, his book, Seduction, however. Moving back again, glass, the symbol of transparency, is fundamentally to matter as a vacuum is to air in that it absorbs it, sucks it in. One consequence of glass and the phenomenon of transparency is the faster communication between inside and outside, which prevents communication from becoming a real opening onto the world. This rather pessimistic portrayal of transparency as an oppressive tool rather than a liberatory one makes apparent Baudrillard's thoughts on communication rather generally. However, we might ask, and this will be a more prominent question with his later work, is this an inevitable condition of transparency, or of the transparency of communication, that is? The immediate effect of transparency, or the total operativity of the system of objects in conjuring away all the drives, as mentioned earlier, is the nullification of antagonisms in the home setting. For example, seating arrangements in the home have become functional, so as to treat all positions and hence all human relationships as a free synthesis. The body's reduction to comfort and functional operativity has privileged physical presence over mental or emotional presence. He writes, It is impossible to become angry in such seats, to which the wish is to never be alone, but never to be faced with another person either. Moreover, the systematic technicity calls forth systematic cultural connotation, which is what Baudrillard labels atmosphere. The body gives out under the weight of this cultural connotation through the exorcism and bodily impulses to amplify and maximize the operativity of the system of objects. As a consequence, man's relationship to objects becomes subject to a social dialectic, which is basically that of the forces of production. We have foreclosed what may have been considered the natural side of the human in favor of the human's betterment as a controller over objects. Again, we return to the notion of the cybernetician. If we accept that the cybernetician is, this, is an adequate description of the human in, its, in this gadget-focused area, then we, era, then we must call into question the ability for the cybernetician to engage in meaningful activities, whether they be for pecuniary decency, leisure, or otherwise. The relationship between the human and the object are stabilized at this point, resulting in their needing to compete between one, one over the other to exert a degree of force that demonstrates one or the other's relative superiority. This is because various technical objects tend, independently of man, to become organized by themselves. Unfortunately, this is, a key, this is a competition that humans are destined to lose. The reason for this is somewhat obvious. In the equalization of the human-object relationship, the object has not taken on human traits to the same extent that the human has taken on technical or objective traits. In effect, man has become less rational than his own objects, which now run ahead of him, so to speak, organizing his surroundings and thus appropriating his actions. The implications of this circumvention are tantamount to grasping the corresponding effects. We may speculate on labor, or the domain in which labor ensues, to observe the effect of effects of this phenomenon. To be vulgar Marxist about it, in the case of labor, where there is a continual drive towards the technical operativity of the modes of production, and the smooth distribution of wealth from one capitalist to the other, we cannot ignore the association between labor and how we construct our identities as humans. The development of technical instruments for the realization of these capitalist desires correspondingly results in what I will naively call a development in human operativity. 
It is important to note, however, that Baudrillard makes clear, in a footnote, that he does not want to romanticize either physical labor or the traditional gestural system. For Baudrillard, the shift constitutes a shift in functionality, where there is no longer an imposition of a real task, but simply, but simply the adaptation of one form to another, as of the handle-to-hand and the consequent supersession or omission of the actual process of work. As mentioned above, there is very little reciprocation between objects and humans. Humans become more like objects and vice versa, and therefore we may accept Baudrillard's contention that objects have now become more complex than human behavior relative to them. The inclusion of the relative to them is not inconsequential, and I think it plays into my point above as well. It is not as though humans in their full capacity as humans, keep in mind that the term human is slippery, and I use it in quotations here, are subversive to objects subservient, sorry, to objects, but that in their proximity to one another and in the human's drive to dominate those objects, the human has seen their relative submission to the status of object. The system of objects may now be likened to the simulacrum, as the observer's position has become intertwined with the realm of objects, or the subject's position. The distinction between the real and the artificial is effectively blurred at this moment, calling into question the very nature of reality itself. Unfortunately, the only victim of this blurring is the human who is turned into an abstraction. We've come around full circle now and performed something of a classic Baudrillardian reversal, an idea that will come out more in the system of, uh, in seduction. Where the hierarchical split between the human and the object has now become one where the object is appreciated over the human. Now it's no longer the human and the object, but the object and the human. Baudrillard emphasizes this point to make the theoretical leap onto the effect of this reversal on the psyche. He writes, traditional phallic symbolism has fallen apart. On the one hand, this system has become abstract, simulacrum of power. As we'll see with Baudrillard's later text, the simulacrum is true. In effect, we have become satisfied by the inoffensive naturalness of signs. This point is, this point is important if it conforms, as it conforms to Baudrillard's navigation of the psyche as a domain that can be influenced by the influx of signs or signifiers. In other words, the simulacrum, if the sign becomes true, then the a priori, or self-evidently true nature of the psyche, is called into question. The order of nature is everywhere present in the system, but present only as signs. What was once believed to affect the psyche, i.e. symbolic relations of power, castration, repressed desire, and so on, has now become open to include the simulated elements of society at large. For example, disqualification from driving, a very unnatural institution, is surely tantamount today to excommunication, to a kind of, kind of social castration. In this way, the car is a projection both phallic and narcissistic. It is important to digress briefly to discuss Baudrillard's theorization of the subjugation of women under this framework. For Baudrillard, all objects, cars included, become women in order to be bought, but this is a function of the cultural system. This point shouldn't necessarily need clarification, but I will try to do so anyways. Women are obviously subject to the same forced abstraction imposed on humans generally, or in the pre-system of objects, um, epoch, whatever we might call that era, perhaps. When analyzing the nude scene in Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt, Baudrillard suggests that, once broken down by body parts into a series, the woman as pure object is then reintegrated into the greater series of all woman objects where she is merely a term among others. 
With this example, we may observe the transposition of the oppression of women in the real structure of human relations onto those that govern us today. So from the pre to the now. The image of women are used to sell objects. Images of women are used to sell objects. I'm willing to propose that this utilization of the image of women is not a consequence of the particular episteme in question, but is a direct result of the historically ambiguous uh, position women have always occupied. Donna Haraway, for example, in her Cyborg Manifesto, may, may be the most appropriate text on this phenomenon. Women do not go through the same abstraction as men to them. To them. Rather, women retain the same ambivalent position left to be swayed by the patriarchal forces of oppression. So in a sense, what we are seeing now today, or at the time when Baudrillard was writing this and what he was theorizing, was not so much uh, a new system of oppression onto women, but rather a transposition or an extension of, the simp of what has always been around. Of course, not something natural, but a sort of a hegemony that has always been present or that have been historically present, that is simply extending its logic onto the terrain of today. Does this system represent a totalizing structural characteristic, however? Or are the examples examples of objects that resist, or are there examples of objects that resist the system? For Baudrillard, the simple answer would be no. However, that does not mean that we do not allocate an emancip emancipatory significance to specific objects. Some of these objects include, but are certainly not limited to, unique, baroque, folkloric, exotic, and antique objects that seem to fall outside the system we have been examining. Ultimately, Baudrillard states that yet, for all their distinctiveness, these objects do play a part in modernity, and this is what gives them a double meaning. The way that these objects play a part as a supposed strategic resistance to the system of objects is through their claims of authenticity. This is particularly true of the antique object that presents itself as a myth of origins. Our obsession with antiques is a product of the erasure of origins and authenticity. We cling to these artifacts not because they actualize the potential for a realization of a fundamental reality or truth, but that because they ultimately simulate an that authenticity because the moment of creation cannot be reproduced. Oh my goodness, get some water. All right. So the antique object represents a regressive dimension because it attests to a relative setback for the system, but nevertheless finds a place within that system paradoxically and paradoxically enables that very system to function. Without the semblance of a past history or some presence of a fundamental reality, simulated or not, the system's mechanisms, humans mostly, would conduct a mutiny of sorts, would conduct, undergo, or conduct a mutiny, organize one, perhaps a better word. By allocating history and our origins to the realm of signs, specifically in the objects we surround ourselves with, we are able to conjure away our commitment to history. This is just one reason that our technological civilization has rejected the wisdom of the old, but it bows down before the solidity of old things, whose unique value is sealed and certain. When history is confined to objects, it can be mapped, categorized, and classified under the aegis of a particular cultural framework. For instance, objects do not merely help us to master the world by virtue of their integration into instrumental series. They also help us to master time subjecting it to the same associational constraints as those which govern the arrangement of things in space. 
Objects house displaced human energy. Our fascination with objects in this sense corresponds to a vague cathartic commitment to the object as a sponge of our present selves and histories. The object contributes to the creation of a total environment, to, the, to that totalization of images of the self that is the basis of the miracle of collecting. This is an important point given the significance attached to objects that are collected, often those objects that are old or viewed as exotic. The collection of objects does not merely communicate the malleability of objects and the ultimate sway that the human collector has over them. Rather, our collecting of objects demonstrates the seductive allure of these objects, demonstrating their relative sway over us, for what you really collect is always yourself. At this point, Baudrillard emphasizes the significance of automatism, especially in the case of the gizmo and the gadget, or the thingy-majiggy. Automatism is simply personalization, personalization dreamt in terms of the object. Automatism is a logical point on the teleological journey of the system of objects, precisely because automatism marks its total autonomy as a closed system. Consequently, by automating his objects, instead of striving to structure his practices in a fluid and open-ended manner, reveals in a way what part he himself plays in a technical society. Two examples of this, the machine and the gizmo, are mutually exclusive, each different in kind, the first operating in the real, the second in the imaginary. The real and the imaginary synthesize here in the form of the robot, which is a symbolic microcosm of both man and the world, which is to say that it simultaneously replaces both man and the world. The robot is the perfect object that sums up all others. This is not simply because it is a simulacrum of man as a functionally efficient being. Rather, it is because it is not so perfect in this regard to be man's double, and because, for all its humanness, is all, it always remains quite visibly an object. The robot is then frozen in, in, in its resemblance to man. The total operativity of the system of objects, and by extension ourselves, leads Baudrillard to make a rather outlandish yet, what I think brilliant claim, that the fragility of objects is not tragic. Rather, it is the temptation represented by that fragility and that death or that interests us. This temptation is satisfied in the way when an object fails us. The fact that is that a world without fallibility would imply the definitive resorption of an inevitable fact, or fate, and hence of sexuality. Here again, we may draw the parallels between Baudrillard and Marcuse, the location of an almost primordial sexuality that presents for Baudrillard something of a revival, if only for a moment, of something pre-system of objects or pre this sort of oppressive schema we find ourselves in today. The system of objects may be understood here as a force that sequesters the basic human drives and principles. Of course, for more on this particular argument, I would recommend um, Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man, Eros and Civilization, and it's an essay on liberation. And perhaps even just the Frankfurt School is key with this type of stuff, uh, which are each, depending on who you read, somewhat accessible. This will move us into Baudrillard's next section, which I must admit I found increasingly or I find increasingly difficult to decipher no matter how many times I read over it. In this section, he explores the relationship between models and series within the system of objects. 13 pages into this section, he writes, by now the reader should be getting a 
better feel for the distinction between models and series. That doesn't, which is not the case. He doesn't make a very good effort to lay out what exactly these things are. However, we'll give it a shot. Baudrillard states that the modern object is dominated by the model series distinction, and that when we speak of the model series distinction, we are talking exclusively about the period during and after industrialization. However, Baudrillard takes the time to perform something of a genealogical excavation of the historical location of series and models. In the pre-industrial period, the model was absolute, for it was bound to a transcendent reality. This is because the model was accustomed to the nobility, where it represented high-status living. In contrast to the posi privileged position of models, the serial object, or the series, was to be found in the broad strata of our society, which is a pretty easy split to think of. This di diametrical split between models and series, one that mirrored the broad division of the aristocracy or the nobility and everyone else, spurred simplistic evaluations of the respective positions of the, these objects respectively held. In response, Baudrillard states that there is a strong temptation to do this, which would inevitably separate series and model completely, so as neatly to assign one to the real and the other to the imaginary. If anything, this analysis of the real and the imaginary presents a rupture in the finality of either one or the other. The model in the series, or their respective analysis and criticism, because of their ambiguous, uh, each ambiguous location in either reality or the imaginary, subtly disturbs the implicit association of any object with reality in contrast to any other given object with that of the unreal. In the modern episteme, thanks to mass information and communication systems, we may observe the very real dissipation of the distinction between models and series. Models, having become part of the serial production, are themselves now open to serial distribution. It should be noted, however, that the model series scheme does not apply evenly to all categories. For instance, it works fine in realm of clothing, but is much more ambiguous when it comes to the difference between one television set and another, for example. This, this drives Baudrillard to state that the psychosociological dynamic of model and series does not, therefore, operate at the level of the object's primary function, but merely at the level of a secondary function, at the level of the personalized object. It logically follows, then, that the choice in question is a specious one. To experience it as a freedom is simple, simply to be less sensible of the fact that it is imposed, imposed upon us as such. Corresponding in part to the paradox of choice, Baudrillard is drawing our attention to our obsession with objects, not to be conflated with the, collect conflated with the collection of antique objects as discussed earlier, but the simple accumulation of objects for the pur purpose of personifying our characters through them. Ultimately, therefore, every object is a model, yet at the same time there are no models. If we consider the effects of industrialization on the model series distinction, in that they both fold into one another in this sort of Mobius strip type uh, illustration. So what we are left with in the end are ever more restricted series based on ever more minute and ever more specific differences. This dissemination of the objects that constitute the model series split spreads their respective ontological positions thin, and if we apply Baudrillard's earlier argument, it would not be inappropriate to assume that simulation operates on these objects in much the same way that it operates on humans. 
For this reason, it is essential that the model be no more than the idea of the model. In other words, that the image of the model supersedes the real model, whatever real means. An important distinction between the series and the model may be observed, or an important distinction may be observed at the level of their continuity, or consistency more appropriately. In the progression of the model, what counts most is the nuancing of it that makes it distinctive, whereas the serial object is strictly subject to the dictates of production. Our location as consumers falls somewhere in between the exercised historicity of the model and the contemporaneity of the series. In effect, most people live in a time that is not theirs. We are simply left to be swayed by the objects that surround us. The subject, then, succeeds in manifesting himself only as an object of economic demand. Baudrillard draws one particular conclusion from this, which runs counter to many assumptions regarding Baudrillardian philosophy and its supposed disavowal of oppression or suffering, or the claim that he's just a filthy nihilist that doesn't care about anything. When he writes that, a seeming equality attaches itself to the fact that all objects obey the same functional imperative, but, as we have seen, this formal democratization of cultural status conceals other inequalities, which are far more serious in that they affect the very reality of the object, its technical quality, its substance, and its lifespan. As far as this point, and consumption are concerned, everything is in movement, yet nothing really changes. For all its increased productivity, our society does not open the door to one single structural change. In the final sections of the system of objects, or the final sections of this book, deal with the dyad of advertising and credit and how they inform a cent the central thesis concerning the system of objects. Baudrillard begins by articulating the futurity of credit as that which is conjugated in the future perfect. This is, of course, a play on words that doesn't really neatly translate uh, into English as it or work in English as it does in French. However, for those interested in the joke or are just interested in French verb conjugation, uh, look into the futur antérieur. So the existence of credit, the perpetual foreclosure of one's present ownership of any given thing, reveals to us a key dimension to our objects. They are here before us, yet they are already a year away, located in that final payment or else in the next model by which they are bound to be replaced, so that, in a sense, their consumption precedes their production. This is a point that will be explored more in Baudrillard's next three books, that is, The Consumer Society uh, for a Critique of the Political Economy of the Sign and The Mirror of Production. However, it does not give us, it does give us an interesting glimpse just here into how Baudrillard attempts to move past Marxism by giving consumption the radical privilege that production once held which isn't, it's just my quick analysis and one that I'll explore more, like I said, in those next three uh, texts. However, we still see the influence of Marxist thought on Baudrillard here when he writes that credit pretends to promote a civilization of modern consumers at last freed from the constraints of property. Our ability to consume objects at a degree greater than that people have been afforded in the past does not mark any progression in the domain of economics. Rather, it is our perpetual insertion into the system of objects that keeps the wheels of advanced capital spinning. Advanced capitalism spinning. Advertising, like credit, operates under very much the same precedent. Advertising may be broadly broken down into two forms. 
the imperative and the indicative. The first complies to the order of propaganda, how we might understand it in totalitarian type regimes, where it serves a, a primarily didactic function. The second is much more difficult to spot, as it is encoded, as it is encoded in the objects themselves and the cultural or social capital that is attached to them. Presently, we are getting better at resisting advertising in the imperative, but are becoming more susceptible to advertising in the indicative, that is, the, more, the one that's more difficult to see. We are more susceptible to this form because it marks the luxury of a society that projects itself as an agency for dispensing goods and transcends itself in a culture. This phenomenon will be of the utmost importance in Baudrillard's third book, The Political Economy of the Sign, or for Critique of the Political Economy of the Sign, and his discussion of Thorstein Veblen. In Baudrillard's analysis, advertising points to an interesting uh, point regarding phenomenology. Again, when Baudrillard writes that technological society in its entirety adapts itself to you via the armchair so perfectly matched to your body's contours, this statement poses an interesting dilemma for phenomenology, especially as it is theorized by Sarah Ahmed, because there is something to be feared by the total acclamation of space to individuals. In Baudrillard's thought, that would mark something of a, like an illusory, or something of an illusion of our um, ownership of the world, where you know we think of the fight club quote it's not the things you own end up owning you just because the objects we have become more comfortable become more luxurious or anything like that does not mean that we are actually engaging in any sort of resistive practice or that our lives are not simply feeding the same oppressive regime so in the phenomenolog phenomenological tradition in my very naive view there's a mutual relationship between the object and the subject or between the world and the observer in other words, the object and the subject inform one another. In Baudrillard's account, we are seeing the dissipation of the subject in favor of the object, where the subject is then, is by becoming one with the world in a sense, through, through the commodities that we consume, the objects that we consume, we are seeing the loss of that kind of radical distance between the object and the, the observer. Effectively then, the purported universality of phenomenology, as theorized by Husserl, comes under fire. I emphasize this point because Baudrillard's allusion to the armchair is one that Ahmed almost takes up exactly in her phenomenological account, which we'll, we will explore when we get to uh, their work. So advertising places society on display and then, in effect, consumes its own image. Advertising works on the level of the dream, which defines and redirects an imaginary potentiality. Advertising should not be understood as a regression, however, even if Baudrillard states that it now performs the same function as once upon a time performed by feasts, because advertising is wholly new. Moreover, it depends on the solidification of any given cultural apparatus. Even if that framework is destined to change, as they always do, it will always be grounded, even for just a moment, in the spectacle of advertising. Advertising can only ever refer to objects, then in a world that is absent, or in a world that becomes absent through its perpetual solidification as an image in the sphere of the media. And, as any faithful Baudrillardian thinker would say, the image always refers only to other images. Baudrillard then points to the sinister side of the equation where objects, in the most tyrannical fashion, 
define categories of people. This is the real function of these advertising systems. And what is more, they only ever liberate fantasies that serve to inhibit our unconscious drives. If we think, one more time, about the Marcusean discourse around liberation and its inherent connection to the repressed unconscious drives found deep in every human, then we may suggest that advertising and the entire model around consumption absorbs these drives, nullifying them to the point that every, even actions intended as resistance, must be defined in terms of a society that conforms to it. The system predicts resistance in its schematics, in its blueprints, and adjusts accordingly to allow resistance to operate in accordance to its own progression and its own logic. Revolution, like the images distributed through advertising, may only ever refer to itself in order to be consumed again as its own idea. Water one more time. I spent my morning hanging curtain rods. Now I'm tired. In the concluding remarks of the system of objects, Baudrillard states that if consumption were indeed tied to the realm of needs, some sort of progress towards satisfaction would presumably occur. If there was a logic to capital, if there was a logic to the system of objects, there wouldn't be huge lots of unused vehicles that were just never sold. If there was a logic to it, everyone would have a car, for example. But it doesn't, it doesn't match a, a sort of systematic logic. It is bound by, to you know, in the very Deleuzean-type fashion, uh, an incoherence that can't be necessarily grappled or articulated and of course, can this not be said, also be said of revolution itself? In this case, if a revolution was something that was truly desired, it might actually occur, or it might actually have some sort of force to it. However, our perpetual transference of the energy of revolution into the image, or the idea of revolution, displaces its potential. That which we consume, whether it be the idea of revolution or the images distributed across advertising media, conform to a singular principle of the law of consumption today. And for Baudrillard, it is that consumption... It is that consumption is first and foremost predicated on there being a continual lack. Images are allowed to proliferate as long as there is an insatiable void of desire. If the system of objects were logical, then there would be satisfaction. However, this is not the case, and we find ourselves in constant pursuit of that which can never be realized. So that it, uh, is my account of Baudrillard's first, first text, The System of Objects. However, I want to elaborate on this that last point a little more because it's going to be important with this next book, The um, Consumer Society, where consumption is not predicated on an abundance, but rather is predicated on a lack, or a term that he comes to use later, a scarcity. Because it's only when things can't be satisfied that consumption really gains traction, where it becomes consuming, of course, for the sake of consuming, um, an idea that course it's very uh we're very familiar with in post-automatism and all these types of approaches um so please i hope you'll tune in next time when we talk about that or perhaps when i get someone else here to speak about something else and we won't have to hear my my terrible voice but anyways have a good one and i hope to see you back here soon